cliffcentral.com. All right, somebody I've really wanted to have on the show for a very, very long time, and um, he's been elusive so far, but I'm thrilled that he's on today. None other than Brendan O'Neill, British journalist, author, and a commentator who's well known for his provocative and contrarian views. And I know that people say that about a lot of writers, but he really is those two things, and in a positive sense. He's, uh, he's got lots to say about contemporary political, social issues, and rose to prominence as the editor of, among other things, the online magazine Spiked. He's been a vocal advocate for free speech, civil liberties, and individual autonomy. And he's just recently written a book called A Heretic's Manifesto. He is Brendan O'Neill. What a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you, Brendan? Hey, Gareth. I'm good. How are you doing? Well, very, very. I mean, I'm just delighted that you haven't been arrested yet, because I always <laughs> thought that um, I always thought my country was sort of a bit backward with the way that if someone said or did something that was pe- perceived to be un-PC, uh, racist, misogynist, sexist, Islamophobic, take your pick, that they would be, uh, you know, thrown in a jail cell. But I've seen a lot more of that happening in Britain lately, which scares the hell out of me. Oh, yeah. Britain is doing very badly on the free speech front at the moment, which is really depressing because I like to think of Britain as the home of modern freedom of speech. You know, this is the land of John Milton and John Stuart Mill and George Orwell and other great warriors for freedom of thought and freedom of speech. So the fact that we're now a country where hundreds of people are arrested and questioned every year for things they say online, and the fact that we're a country where women are arrested and questioned by the police for saying uh, women don't have penises, and the fact Mm -hmm. that we're a country where you can even be collared by the cops for telling an un-PC joke, it's very dispiriting, it's very worrying. If political correctness can even grip the United Kingdom, then I think the entire Western world is in trouble. Well, I've got a long list of things that I want to talk to you about, and none of those is, is a particularly unincendiary thing. But you've been you've written about so many things in the past, and, and your latest book, which I'm excited to get stuck into too, um, you published it last year, I think. Uh, you ask things like, "Can a woman have a penis? Is the West forever doomed and stained by racism? Are we all going to die from climate change?" And you know, the answer to those questions in a more serious time might have been obviously not but now it seems that even contradicting any of those statements will get you into the sort of trouble that we spoke about just a a moment ago um do you think we've we've reached a point somewhere in the 20th century where humanity was smart where we had smart people among us and we were led by people who made sense and were rational and sensible and that we've somehow gone backwards since then I think we have, yes. I think the parameters of acceptable thought seem to be shrinking all the time. So even people with perfectly reasonable beliefs, I consider all my beliefs to be very reasonable, although people keep telling me they're very extreme and very contrarian. Um, Even people with reasonable beliefs can find themselves further and further outside of the parameters of acceptable thought, not because they themselves have changed what they think and what they say, but because the parameters themselves have shrunk so much over the past few years. And, you know, women having penises is the perfect example. Ten years ago, it would have been seen as perfectly good and normal and correct to say that men have penises and women don't. But now you can find yourself blacklisted from university campuses for saying something like that or hounded online 
or even, as I say, lectured by the police. A woman here in Britain was subjected to a long lecture by a police officer because she had a sticker on her door saying women don't have penises. So, you know, it's extraordinary the speed with which orthodoxy can rise up and swallow everything in its pathway. And if you deviate from it in any fashion, then you can find yourself being criminalized or ostracized or demonized. So one of the reasons I wrote my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, was precisely to ask the question if we're going backwards. And it seems to me that we are kind of going back to an old era of witch hunts and the way in which, you know, as I say in the introduction to the book, no one is being burnt at the stake at the moment, but people's reputations are being burnt. Uh, their lives are being upended. They are being, they're often losing their jobs or finding themselves being questioned by officialdom simply for the beliefs they hold and the beliefs they express. So I think we are going backwards. I think we're going back to a time when it was seen as acceptable to treat certain people as heretics and to denounce them as heretics and to control public discussion. And that's something I think we should all be concerned about. Yeah, it interests me that the Overton window has shifted so much, this area of what is acceptable public discourse and how that's moved imperceptibly to the left to the point where, you know, again, reasonable people find themselves unable to have the kinds of conversations perhaps that we're having now, unless it's in places like we're having them now. And in your, you know, in, in Spiked and on podcasts and on certain uh, very niche uh, content offerings, because the mainstream media seems wholly bent on pursuing this course of, of either shrinking and or shifting that Overton window. We were, we were once told, Brendan, and I know you've written about this too, we were once told, oh no, these kinds of bizarre left-wing, mad, uh, unbelievable opinions were the province of college students who were too young to know any better and, 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 and too uh, idealistic to, to be persuaded else, uh, otherwise. But it's clearly not the case because it's spread from the college campuses in the United States and, and probably here in South Africa and in Britain too. And it's become so frightening that, in fact, ordinary people are persuaded rather to shut their mouths and not say anything. Do you think that we've got to redevelop some courage in that respect? Or do you think it's possible to move the Overton window back into the, the, the place of moderation and sensibility? You know, <laughs> yeah, but I, I think in order to do that, we do need to develop courage first. And I think it will take some people to stand up and to deviate from correct think and to say what is, uh, uh, you know, to express those old views you're not supposed to express anymore. It will take more and more people doing that in order to shift things back to normality, I think. That's probably the only way in which it can be done. At the moment, lots of people are silencing themselves. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to lose their friends. In some circumstances, I understand it. Um, you know, there's a very real possibility that, you know, it's fine for J.K. Rowling, for example, to say the things that she says about um, biology and womanhood and so on, because she is uncancelable. She is a very right. rich, very famous woman. Um, I'm full of admiration for the stance that she has taken because she could easily have had an easy life. Um, so I'm full of admiration for her, but it's quite easy for her to say these things. She can't be cancelled, which is one of the reasons they hate her so much. They can't drag her down like they do, you know, the, the more lowly women whose jobs that they, they can uh, uh, take away from them and whose livelihoods they can take away from them. 
So I understand why some people don't speak out because it is a risky business. There are genuine consequences in this unforgiving climate to saying things that we're supposed to not say. But I do think those of us who can speak out or who think it's worth the risk to speak out, more and more of us have to do it because that's the only way we will shift the Overton window back to something that resembles reality and truth and morality. At the moment, it's gone so far in the other direction that it can actually feel quite scary at times. So yeah, courage of our convictions and the courage to speak out is probably the only way to challenge this current climate. And the, the more that we do that, I think the, the greater gains we will have in the long run. How how has it affected you personally having having the sorts of opinions you had? I mean, you know, famously in your in your own in the notes rather on your biography, it says that you're a former Trotskyist and Marxist libertarian. And there's that old, I think it's Chesterton saying of, you know, ev everybody who isn't uh, young and a liberal hasn't got a heart, and anyone who isn't uh, old and conservative hasn't got a brain. Um, how did you go from being a Trotskyist, Marxist, libertarian, to, to being someone who's perceived by everybody to be on the right? And what does it cost you in terms of voicing your opinion so unpopularly sometimes? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I find it difficult to define myself these days politically. I think the old categories don't work very well. Uh, I don't think left and right is a very useful guide to politics in the 21st century. I think there are more interesting divides that have emerged between um, populist and technocrat, for example, or mm. authoritarians and libertarians, or people who believe in the nation state and people who believe in a more globalist form of politics. I think those are the more interesting divides that have emerged. I think the old left-right divide it's kind of it's a it's a comfort blanket we sometimes wrap ourselves in to try and make sense of a confusing world but it doesn't quite fit in terms of what's going on politically i see myself as i still feel radical some days and conservative on other days so there are some days i i wake up and the house of lords here in the uk for example might have done something really awful you know our unelected second chamber one of the largest mm -hmm. undemocratic chambers in the world outside of obviously China's parliament, um, and I feel incredibly radical. I want to take to the streets and, uh, you know, like they did in England in the 1640s and protest outside the House of Lords and demand its abolition. And I feel like a kind of fuming radical leftist. And then on other days, I feel quite conservative because I look at what's happening in schools, for example, where kids are being taught that there are 72 genders or that if you're a white kid, you probably have white privilege or that British history is just a litany of crimes, one horror after another. And then I feel very conservative and I think to myself, no, we need to conserve the traditional notion of, of education as the means through which we transmit knowledge from one generation to another. And we need to really conserve that and protect it from these frothing lunatics who are taking over the education system. So I find myself flitting politically almost on a day-by-day -day basis, depending on the problem that I'm confronted with. Um, but you mentioned Trotsky there. It's, it's funny, I often get asked about my time as a Trotskyist when I was very young. I did enjoy it. It was actually good fun. You know, mm -hmm. there, are still there are still even elements of Trotsky that I feel quite moved by today. I mean, Trotsky's most important rallying cry was that we should try to expand uh, the influence of man over nature and decrease the influence of man over man. And I think that probably is still something I would cleave to. You know, I want to expand uh, 
our influence over nature, our ability to control nature, to exploit natural resources, to have progress, to have industrialization, to have economic growth. I think, I think those are good things. At the same time, I want to decrease man's power over man in terms of authoritarianism, censorship, uh, right. the desire to control what people do and what people say. So I borrow bits from Trotsky, I guess. I borrow bits from conservative thinkers. I borrow bits from enlightenment thinkers. I guess I'm a bit of a magpie politically at the moment, which is probably the only thing one can be in a political period like ours, which is very confusing and sometimes very disorientating. Well, yes. And of course, it makes it difficult for your enemies to label you then because it's easier for them to just slap the right wing label on you and say, well, you shouldn't be taken seriously because of this. I, I doubt very much that the, uh, the environmentalists would like your interpretation of Trotsky when it comes to man versus nature, huh? <laughs> no, they absolutely wouldn't. And, um, you know, the number of arguments I've had with environmentalists or, or green left wingers over the past mm. couple of decades and the way in which you really infuriate them is by saying that, um, you know, you think you're Marxists, but actually you're Malthusians. You know, you 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 have more in common with Thomas Malthus, who was obviously the, one of the first population scaremongers from the late 1700s, early 1800s. His yeah. big argument was that we were running out of natural resources. There wasn't enough stuff to feed all the people who were being born. The world population back then was around 200 million or 300 million. He failed to foresee the Industrial Revolution. He obviously failed to see all the advances that were made in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, which means that actually we're more than capable of creating a world of abundance and of feeding billions of people. Um, so I often say to Greens, look, you think of yourself as progressive, but actually you're regressive. You think of yourselves as radical leftists, but actually you're more like depressing Malthusians. So, uh, that, but that's another one of the arguments of our time that I think it's really important to challenge. You know, the climate change straitjacket is so stifling. There's only one opinion you're allowed to have, which is that the human footprint is a horrible, disgusting blight on the planet, and we need to scrub it away learn to live with less, uh, fly less, eat less meat, travel less, shop less, drive less, you know, do less and less stuff in order to shrink your footprint on the planet. And that's the only opinion you're allowed to have. And if you say, actually, I want people to have more, not less, I want them to fly more, not less, then you're treated as some kind of, you know, planet destroying lunatic. So, so that, that's another issue on which I think it's really important to break out of the boundaries of what we're allowed to think. Well, I think you you were the one who said during COVID, well, this is precisely the perfect uh, opportunity for us to show the world what the world would look like in perpetuity if the environmentalists got their way. You know, you'd be locked in at home. You wouldn't be able to travel anywhere. You wouldn't be able to buy certain things. There would be restrictions on your opinions, your movement. You'd have to do what they told you. It's almost as if they've had their their view. They're very limited and and thank God not terribly long-lasting view of what the world would look like if they had their way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Lockdown gave us a, a brilliant and chilling insight into what the world would be like if the green extremists ever got their way. And, you know, a lot of them openly said that. Some of them openly wrote articles and made arguments saying, um, this is proof, lockdown is proof, that if we really want to... Uh, stop people from behaving in a destructive fashion, we can do it. We can use the power of the state 
to control how people behave and how much they pollute and how much they do and so on. So Greens were openly saying that. And um, when I wrote a piece quoting them and saying, you know, this is really scary that they're thinking like this, I got load of, uh, a load of flack and a, a load of people attacking me. Whereas I think it was their arguments that were the genuinely scary ones. I think it's, um, you know, there is this, the, the thing about lockdown that I found very interesting was that the speed with which normal life was completely suspended, every civil liberty in, here in the UK anyway, that you would traditionally joy, enjoy was completely suspended. Democratic life was suspended. You weren't allowed to leave your home on pain of arrest. We could go out once a day. If you went out more than once a day, your neighbors were encouraged to phone a police hotline to squeal on you, to, to grasp you up to the, to the cops. And when you look back on that period, you know, in here in the UK, it lasted for about six to 12 months. It really was a chilling insight into how far authoritarianism has gone. And some people want it to go further. You know, there are Greens here in Britain who say, let's have a climate lockdown next. Let's do this again, but in order to save the planet rather than to stop the spread of a disease. So there, the authoritarian imagination is unleashed at the moment. And I think the more we can do to leash it and to get it back under control, the better. We may come back to environmentalism in a little bit, but you've you've obviously been writing quite a lot recently about what is probably uh, Europe's biggest existential crisis, which is the migrant crisis. The fact that you have huge numbers of African and Asian immigrants um, coming into into Europe, and uh, mostly men of fighting age, and and it seems that Europe has no answer to this except either to go along with it or to elect leaders who are are, are going to pretend that they're going to do something about it and end up doing nothing in any case. Um, what do you what do you think the the overwhelming concern here is? Is it what we're told by the left, and we've we've got to get back to them too, because even though you said they're they're a bunch of Malthusians in the environmental lobby, they also on the left there seems to be a a very bizarre coalition, and they don't mind a little bit of hypocrisy in that coalition, but they say sometimes that immigration is an overall good. We should have open borders. It shouldn't matter. Nationalism is a thing of the past. And they don't propose any solutions because they think probably that immigration is a net good. Uh, and on the right, you've just got people who have been either who are genuinely just xenophobic or people who are trying to stand up for a culture which has been pushed to the sidelines by things, supranational things like the EU or the UN. What do you have to say about the migration crisis and where you think it's headed? Yeah, I think the migration crisis is incredibly serious and I think you've outlined it really well there where on the one hand we have the left um, you know in tandem with the, the globalist institutions like the European Union and the UN and so on all of whom argue that immigration is an unalloyed good and if you strip away their arguments you know they present it as in the language of political correctness you know that uh, yeah. immigrants bring new cultures and new ideas to our countries and therefore that's wonderful that's brilliant um, but actually, if you if you look at what they're really saying is you can see that they value immigration to the extent that it weakens the idea of national borders. And sometimes they will openly say that they will openly say, look, the, the clearest way to demonstrate that we are a post borders world, a post nationhood world is to allow a greater free flow of labor, a greater free flow of people 
And that's the way in which we will demonstrate that we are serious about creating a new global world rather than a narrow nationalist world. So the, the European Union, for example, obviously British people voted to leave the European Union in 2016. But if you look at their rules on freedom of movement, which are absolutely central to the single market, it was premised very explicitly on the idea that it's not good enough for nations to have control of their borders. That's an old fashioned idea. You have to submit to the European Union idea that your borders can be thrown open, um, depending on the needs of capital, the needs of people who want jobs and the desires of Brussels itself. So the way in which immigration has been weaponized almost as a means of undermining the nation state and undermining the entire idea of borders, I find that incredibly worrying. And then, as you say, there are there are some on the right, there are new populist right wing leaders, some of whom are doing very well in Europe, whose response is not to analyze why immigration is happening and to really look at the problems that it can cause in a society, but to just demonize the people who are coming here. Um, to see them all as problematic and to see them all as bad. You know, every single one of them is suspect and a problem and, and needs to be driven out of our countries. And that's not the right approach either. I think what we need to be arguing for is greater democratic control over the question of immigration. It should be down to the people within a nation state to be able to vote and to decide on what kind of immigration policy we should have what kind of immigrants we should allow into the country, for what purpose they should be allowed into the country. You know, these are very reasonable requests. Or, or, else, or else why bother having a nation state if you're not going to do that, right? Well, exactly right. You know, and, and that is the fundamental question at the root of all of this. You know, uh, are we going to be nation states in which the people themselves have direct control over what happens within the borders of that territory? Or are we just going to be, you know, playthings of the globalist elites who have to be told to do A, B and C? And if we don't, we'll be fined or shunned or pushed out. That is, mm. I think, the fundamental question at the heart of the immigration issue. You know, I particular, I personally don't have a problem with immigration. My parents are immigrants. Um, I'm a first generation Briton. Um, my family has only been in this country for around 50 years or so, so not very long at all. We really are newcomers. Um, and I know lots of, I grew up in a, in a part of London that has huge numbers of immigrants. And it was mm. fine. For the most part, it was fine. But something really interesting has happened over the past 10 years where immigration has spun out of control, especially in Europe. And it's spun out of control for quite cynical political reasons. Where, people, where the elites are using immigrants to reprimand the idea of the nation state and to reprimand the native population and to say to them, listen, these people are going to bring some new values and ideas that will improve the likes of you. So that's created a lot of tension, it's created a lot of political conflict, and we need to get a democratic handle, I think, on the question of immigration. Yeah, I think you've sketched that scenario pretty damn well for us. But it's interesting that that you you also bring up in your in your idea, and I think it's a good one of kind of redefining this this very narrow thing of left and right. And if we look at the idea of populism and 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 the technocrats, as you put it, I mean, it's it seems to me that the the ruling elites in many Western countries are perfectly okay with a little bit of populism, provided it goes the way that they want it to go. The moment it doesn't then they kick up a fuss and say, oh, well, this is just mob rule and we shouldn't take these, these rubes seriously. And actually, we shouldn't be listening to them. And frankly, if they don't go along with our globalist ideas and our left-wing 
tendencies, then they're probably part of the problem. So we'll just ignore them. And that's called defending democracy in their book. It's perverse, isn't it? Completely and utterly perverse. It really is extraordinary. And um, one of the chapters in my book, in fact, is, is about this very question of um, populism and the elite's hysterical reaction to some of the populist votes of recent years. I mean, Brexit was a very early example of yeah. this where, you know, the, yeah, you know, the pressure on us voters in Britain to to vote remain, to vote to stay in the EU, the pressure was enormous. It was absolutely staggering. You know, if you look at, for example, uh, members of parliament here in Britain, I think it's around 70% or 72% of MPs voted to remain. With a Labour Party, that goes up to around 95%. And then if you look at the country at large, only 48% voted to remain and 52% famously voted to leave. So the disconnect between the establishment and ordinary people was absolutely vast. You know, most of the business elites, the cultural elite, of course, uh, the social media oligarchs, um, American politicians who kept poking their noses into the referendum, uh, the European Union, obviously, all of them said you have to vote remain otherwise Britain will go to hell in a handcar. And ordinary people said, mm, no, we've made a different decision and we're going to vote to leave. So it was a massive break uh, in the cultural authority and the political authority of the new elites. And that's why they reacted with such extraordinary hostility. And they damned the voters as ignoramuses, as, as gammon. That's what they call us here in Britain, gammon. Um, you know, basically stupid people who were spoon fed this idea by tabloid newspapers. And we had our brains warped by Russian bots on the Internet. They couldn't accept the idea that we made a rational, grown up democratic choice to leave the European Union. They had to defame us as ignorant idiots. So and that was an early example. I, I was at a dinner not so long ago and, and there was a couple there who you could categorize as being precisely these people who, who kind of look down their noses at ordinary folk and say, well, they shouldn't really have a right to decide on their own future. And their point of view was what, what these uh, idiots have done, it plunged us into uh, uncertainty and, 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 and poor leadership. And now we're still trying to find our way out of the EU. And it's such a disaster. And just look, just look without giving any actual examples at how dreadful that decision was. And they continue to believe that they were in, in the right. Yeah, uh, it's extraordinary. And I meet people like that all the time. I'm often on media discussions with people like that, and they refuse to see the other side. They completely refuse to see it. And, you know, they will often say exactly what those people said to you, that, you know, us Brexit voters plunged the nation into chaos. And they will often depict Brexit Britain as being an outlier in Europe. You know, we're, our economy has gone down the toilet and we've got a terrible energy crisis and we're, we're very confused as a nation. And then you look across to Germany or France, you know, France, they've had uh, riots over the past few years. Germany is currently going through an extraordinary economic downturn and its energy crisis is really severe. The idea that being in the EU makes everything hunky-dory and being outside of the EU is a chaotic disaster. It just doesn't stack up, even when you look at the facts. I think what really riled them is that it was probably the first time since we got the franchise in this country, it was in 1928, that every adult over the age of 21, including women, finally got the franchise in this country. And 
in every election since then, we've basically just had a choice between two parties, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. And very often there's not been much difference between them. Sometimes there has been, sometimes not so much. In 2016, with the EU referendum, it was really the first time ever that British voters had been asked to make a decision that would radically change the history of the entire country in a way that was unimaginable in any other election. So they entrusted us with this enormous decision and we made what they consider to be the wrong decision. They will never forgive us for that. They will never forgive us. And the hatred they feel for Brexit voters cannot be overstated. It's a really impassioned, feverish, unhinged loathing for sections of society who dare to defy the establishment. So, you know, as you say, they argue that they are trying to save democracy by standing up to populism, but actually they're trashing the whole idea of democracy by essentially saying that we can't trust the plebs to make big decisions like this. So I want to stay in Britain for a little bit because you've written some very nuanced and I think very thoughtful bits about how class in Britain has changed and, and the perception of class. Again, from the outside, there are many things here that South Africans might not understand. But the working classes in Britain who really are the, you know, you can caricature them in any way you like, and they've been caricatured, frankly, by, by you know, the, the, the good and glorious and the, 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 the worse all along the way. But the working class in Britain have really been let down by Labour. And I think they've also been let down by the Tories, and they don't really have a home now. If you're a, a good, solid working class family from the east of London, um, if you're still in the east of London and you haven't uh, chosen to emigrate somewhere else, or you haven't been a, a victim of, of you know some kind of, of ugly national tyranny imposed from above, if you're one of those people, you don't really have a political home at the moment, do you? No, not at all. And um, if we look at the Labour Party here in Britain, you know, something very interesting is happening with social democratic parties across Europe, which is that they are increasingly becoming parties not of the working class, but of the graduate elites, of um, young upper middle class people who've been to university, who've never had a working class job and whose parents very often aren't working class either. Social democratic parties have become machines for those kinds of people. And so if you look at the voting habits of people who vote for the Labour Party in Britain, for example, the working class vote for Labour has steadily gone down, whereas the middle class vote for Labour has steadily gone up. And, and the Labour Party is now largely a party of the middle classes. And um, the Conservatives, certainly in the 2019 election, when Boris Johnson won a huge victory, um, in large part because lots of working class voters, voters shifted to the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party, for a period of time, did look like it was going to become the new party of the working class. I think they've completely fluffed it, and I think they've let working class voters down over the past five years, and I'm not sure the working classes will vote for them again this year. Let's wait and see. But yeah, massive political realignments are happening, not only in Britain, but across Europe where the social democratic parties have turned their backs on the working classes and now treat them with utter disdain. They look upon them as obese, stupid, racist, xenophobic, unintelligent, misogynists who need to be re-educated and need to be uh, have woke values instilled in them all day long. They really do treat them less as democratic citizens than as this problematic blob that needs to be fixed by uh, the movers and shakers of the new establishment. And then the conservative parties in Europe 
have one more working class vote. There's no question about it, but they don't quite know what to do with these working class people. They don't really understand them. They don't like everything that they believe. They don't like some of their values. So they're kind of, they're happy to have those votes, but they're not sure how to satisfy those communities. So you're absolutely right. Working class voters are in a kind of political limbo at the moment. There's no natural home for them. And it will be interesting to see if this realignment does give rise to new parties that better reflect what working class people want. You know, despite the fact that that there's so much immigration into Britain from all over the world and from people who are, uh, you know, both refugees at one end and, and extremely smart people who want to make a contribution in the country they think they can make a great contribution in if it's Britain. And I can't help thinking that there seems to be this self-loathing baked into the pie. It's it's almost as though if you are a Brit um, and you've you've come out of the period of empire and two massive world wars and perhaps you're two generations removed from that and you're almost embarrassed about your past because it was just too glorious and too much was achieved and too much of the world was civilized and conquered and too much good stuff spread like liberalism and human rights and free speech and all of that sort of thing and now it's almost time to atone for all of that by just shutting up and quietly becoming little Britain instead of Great Britain. There's something about that which I find deeply depressing and sad, but also it reminds me of the kinds of, uh, of, of and, and they're rare uh, in, in, in this example I'm going to cite. They're much more common in the British example that I'm talking about. But the idea of the self-loathing Jew who will protest alongside Hamas, you know, against Israel, it, it almost seems to be this this need to denigrate the self uh, and in so doing gain some virtue for being someone who stands up for others, even though they didn't ask you to stand up for them. Yeah, that's really, that's absolutely right. And um, there is this fashion, especially within the new elites, um, the graduate elites in particular, there is this fashion for self-loathing, for national Mm. self-loathing and for looking at Britain as a very problematic country, you know, pockmarked by all sorts of historic crimes, colonialism, empire, involvement in the slave trade in in the early days and so on. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this has been around for quite some time, in fact. You know, George Orwell in the 1930s and the 1940s, he wrote about um, the peculiar national self-loathing of the English intellectual classes who who looked towards Europe. They thought Europe was far more civilized. They preferred European authors and European food, and, and they disdained everything British. And he, one of his it's arguments was... Sorry, it's interesting, by the way, that in America, the same thing is happening. You know, it has been happening for 20 years. So that American elites have been looking to Europe and said, oh, they're, they're much more civilized than we are. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and, and we see a similar situation with Britain and Europe. And it's, I find it really unappealing and uh, an unattractive quality because there is so much in Britain for us to be proud of. You know, did we make some mistakes historically? Of course we did. Every country on earth did. Um, but we also did some great things. We did some amazing things. You know, Britain in, is arguably uh, the birthplace of, you know, the modern idea of parliamentary democracy and the modern idea of freedom of the press and the modern idea of freedom of speech. You know, lots of those ideas really uh, emerged here or took form here in in the 1600s and the 1700s, and they later inspired the American Revolution and even the French Revolution. So um, there's a lot for us to be proud of in terms of 
uh, how we and of course the industrial revolution uh, a lot of that started in the uk in my view the industrial revolution is probably the most important moment in human history so far in terms of the radical transformation it had on the world there's so much that we could be shouting about from the rooftops but instead what our political classes choose to do is to make us feel ashamed we should be they induce this sense of shame especially in the younger generation in schools in the classroom even in universities they induce this sense of national shame all the time and they're giving rise to this new layer of influencers political influencers media influencers who are fashionably uh, hateful of the country in which they live and but you yeah. raise a really important point which is that it's not just self-loathing it's self-loathing as a means of demonstrating one's own virtue so the way in which you are a virtuous person now in britain is by affecting disdain for britain itself so it's this very strange combination of self-loathing but also self-pride you know i'm a good person because i understand how dark our history was whereas all those stupid ignorant plebs out there still think britain is a great country because they're so ill-educated and ill-informed so it's a strange mixture of loathing and pride of hatred and virtue and it's i think it's a very unattractive political project it reminds me a little bit of, of how christopher hitchens used to say really religious people have this bizarre combination in them of, of utter humility that they must bow before god and scrape on the floor and beg for forgiveness for their worm you know, wormy remains. And yet at the same time, everything is about them and it's as solipsistic as it can possibly get. You know, it's, it's sort of this, this idea at the heart yeah, of it, like, this, this dichotomy. Yeah, so, it's like, the, you know, the Pope, the Pope will bend down and kiss the ground and then stand up and tell you how to live your life. I say yeah. that as a, as a Catholic, but that's, a, it's a good, it's a good sign of, you know, it's often yeah. performative humility or performative self-flagellation is a means through which people then assume the moral high ground and tell the rest of us how to live. So there is a link. There's definitely a link between those two things. Well, I, I mean, you you mentioned how self-loathing has led to the state of, of Britain that, as it is at the moment. And you've got a choice now of, of, what is it, Sunak and Starmer. I mean, you couldn't wish for two more milk toast people uh, if you tried. It's really it, depressing. That's that's what you've got to choose. And people are pretending they're excited about this election. If you turn on Sky News, God forbid, I keep telling people in this country not to watch Sky News because they're doing themselves a huge disservice. But that's what you've got, right, Brendan? Yeah, it's a choice between um, two bank managers, you know, one gray suit and another gray suit. That's all we're that's all we're left with. Two shades of technocracy. Two cheeks of the same ass, if I'm allowed to be vulgar about it. That's that's all we have. And you know what's what's that's often been the case in elections in Britain, especially in in recent years. It's often been a choice between you know two two different shades of the same politics. But what's depressing about it this time around, uh, this year, where we will have to choose between Sunak and Starmer, is that it comes on the back of the. Brexit revolution and the vote for Boris Johnson in 2019, which was a bit of a revolution as well. And what those votes were about, they were about saying, look, we want a new kind of politics. We want a more populist politics that is sensitive to the needs and interests of ordinary people, which puts the interests of working British people above the woke ideology of the new elites and above their ideas. That's, you know, there was a a, a genuine ballot box revolt to turn politics on its head, 
to destroy the technocratic idea, to bring democracy back home to Britain so that it wasn't being decided in Brussels, but was being decided in Westminster. You know, this was a real positive revolt. It was incredibly exciting. And somehow, through all sorts of um, ups and downs, we've ended up with the worst choice I think we've ever faced, which is between one technocrat and another technocrat. So we have to have a reckoning, I think, with how we fell so far from the Brexit ideal of renewing politics to this uh, choice that we have between two different types of bank manager. I like your two cheeks of the same ass. I think that's a much better metaphor. So, Brendan, I, I don't want to keep you here all day, even though I think we could talk all day about these things. We can get into the media and all kinds of things. But there is this uh, coalition of the identity obsessed. Um, you know, the left all over the world. And we have it in South Africa. Uh, we, we have an extreme left that's very uh, hell-bent on the idea of, you know, on the same hand, in our case, uh, extreme African nationalism with some LGBT rights thrown in, with uh, we hate Israel, with the capitalist class are the worst possible people and the state should have control of everything. And it seems like this very bizarre and, and quite cognitively dissonant mass that that moves in a in an ever more militant way leftward i think it's also something that you're dealing with in britain i think it's also something you've written about when it comes to the us um and and europe in fact so what do we do to stand up to this because it's clearly a minority movement it's there's nowhere in the world where it's it's overwhelmingly popular uh, and yet it's had tremendous success in no small part thanks to the media Oh, God, you know, where to start with identity politics? To my mind, it is the worst kind of politics. It is yeah. pork barrel politics. It is, um, it's racist. It's sexist. It's incredibly divisive. It's classist. You know, it treats ordinary people, ordinary working people as the scum of the earth who, who need to be re-educated all the time. It is a very poisonous, regressive, authoritarian form of politics. And, you know, you, you talk there about a leftward uh, shift. Um, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, that's certainly how people understand it. And that's certainly how it feels. It feels like this le these leftish elites are taking over and telling us how to think and how to behave and so on. But I, what I find interesting about identity politics is that it seems to me to be a, an abandonment of what of older left-wing values. Now, this is not to romanticize the left of the past, which had numerous problems of its own, but they at least had some understanding of the importance of class, questions of class, the importance of economic power, um, the importance of ensuring that people were being paid well and had good working conditions. You know, their focus tended to be on the majority in society, which is to say working people. And there was a recognition that they deserve certain rights and they deserve certain living standards. What we have with identity politics is something that is anti-majoritarian. It looks upon the majority of society with a, a searing suspicion. It treats them with suspicion. It treats them with di disdain and derision. And it values instead minority groups. So it obsesses over gender fluid people, you know, an infinitesimally small minority in our societies, trans people, um, you know, uh, 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 black communities, which here in the UK, that is a small minority. Uh, I know it's very different in South Africa, but they focus on these minority groups and they elevate their interests 
over the interests of society more broadly. So they create these constant rounds of conflict and social tension between different sections of society, and they rehabilitate racial tension. They rehabilitate social tension, even though they present themselves as anti-racist. So it's a, mm. it's a poisonous form of politics, and, and taking it down, I think, is one of the great challenges we face. But it's also so good when you can, when you can dismantle a stupid argument because they aren't, they are paper thin. And very often the people who espouse these values haven't really thought about it terribly much in any real detail. Of course, their biggest concern is that we go in the direction that Argentina's just gone with uh, Javier Millet or with Bukele in El Salvador. And, and they've, they view this as a terrible, terrible jump to the right, which they think is going to inevitably lead to Adolf Hitler and Nazism. People of those countries have a different point of view. And just recently in El Salvador showed that they support this kind of thing in very large numbers. Oh, they're terrified. They're, they're absolutely terrified of democracy um, yep. because, you know, they recognize that um, ordinary, they, at some instinctive level, they know that they are a kind of new, almost priestly class lording it over the rest of the population they at some instinctive level they recognize that and they know that there is a great deal of hostility out there for their ideas and for what they think and for what they say so if you look at you know the example of britain or, or you know europe more broadly at the moment there are farmers revolting against uh, net zero policies there are farmers taking to the streets demanding the right to make food without having to follow all these strict green rules um, there are people rising up against uh, old technocratic parties, voting them out of office. In some cases, for the first time ever, these parties are being shunted aside by populist parties. And, you know, everywhere I go in Britain, I meet people who bristle against the woke ideology, identity politics, who think it's a load of crap, to be blunt, who think the idea that someone with a penis can be a woman is hocus pocus, who completely agree? Who completely agree with J.K. Rowling that you know uh, women's spaces should be for women only? These are perfectly normal, very widespread views in society. But if you listen to the new identitarian elites, to this new priestly class, you would think that they were unspeakable heresies, unutterable speech crimes, that, and anyone who says them should be blacklisted from polite society. But the vast majority of people believe these reasonable things, that we should have economic growth, job creation, equality, sexual equality, and that men are men and women are women. People believe these things, but the identitarian rulers are trashing all of them. So that tension is going to come to a head, I think, at some point, because people have had enough of being lauded over by these disconnected, eccentric new elites. Well, you talk about disconnected and eccentric, and I have to bring special attention to something that I love when, when you tackle the, um, the, the, this, the extreme climate change people, the extreme environmentalists, these uh, extinction rebellion types in the UK, because my God, if you've ever seen a group of completely insane, totally terrified uh, unhinged people. It's got to be these guys. And you have, it's a uniquely British thing. I mean, I do see them occasionally throwing paint on the Mona Lisa or trying to do something in Germany, but you guys have, have more than your uh, proportional fill of, of the, these nutcases. Why do you think that is? <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a death cult. That's what it is. This is a posh death cult made up of the old aristocracy who, uh, who hate, 
the modern world. I mean, that's that really is all the all there is to it. If you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, they are very posh people. A lot of them were privately educated. Whenever they're in the papers, I always know they're going to have names like Tiggy or Edward or you know Poppy. <laughs> you know, not names that yeah. ordinary people tend to have. They have these very kind of upper middle class names. They often come from very plummy backgrounds. Um, you know they are they are the old aristocracy and and i've referred to extinction rebellion and other movements as in some ways the revenge of the aristocrats because of course the industrial revolution here in britain and i'm sure in other countries too um it really put pay to the old aristocracy it it really weakened their power and it weakened their control over vast swathes of the land because it it um it interfered in the commons, it brought people into mm. cities, it gave people jobs, it gave people new forms of labour, and it re really undermined the power of the aristocracy. So they've always had a, a, a hatred for the modern world, for the industrialised world. You can see it in King Charles as well. King Charles, yeah. back when he was Prince Charles, was constantly raving against modern society and climate change and industry and so on because they have this instinctive hostility to it. So I, I think Extinction Rebellion is really, it's kind of a class war in drag where, you know, there have been some hilarious scenes over the past few years where you have these posh kids holding up tube trains, you know, gluing themselves to tube trains in East London, for example. And then they're surrounded by these working class people who just want to get to their job and earn some money, you know, telling them to F off and piss yeah. off and you know get out of this tube system and, and and really insulting them so there is a there's a class element to this there's an irrational element and i think it's another part of the new elite hostility to ordinary people where you have this very aristocratic disdain for ordinary people who want to live in an industrialized modern world with all the kind of comforts that that should entail all right. So what's on your agenda for the next few months? Because you, you're writing consistently and I think extremely well on all of these matters that we've covered. And we haven't even scratched the surface on some of them, religion. I wanted to talk about raci racism and nationalism and all kinds of other things. But we, we, we won't have time and I don't want to keep you all day because I know you've got other projects on the go. So A Heretic's Manifesto is probably prescribed reading now for anyone who's heard you on the show. But what else are you busy with? Yeah, so people should definitely read A Heretic's Manifesto. It's a pretty good book, if I must say so myself. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing all the time. I seem to write constantly every day. So I obviously I write for Spiked, where I'm, I, I was the editor and now I'm the chief political writer. I also write for the Daily Mail here in Britain and for The Spectator. And I do my weekly podcast, um, The Brendan O'Neill Show as well. And I do media stuff. So I'm always doing lots and lots of different things but one thing that i want to do over the next couple of months is really start planning my follow-up book to a heretics manifesto which again it will be a book of provocations a book of um what i think are important arguments that people feel uncomfortable making but need to be made so that's going to be my next project a follow-up to a heretics manifesto just to really detonate another bomb, I hope, in contemporary discussion and try and bring a, a bit of common sense to what's going on in the world. I just hope that that beeping in your room isn't the, the deep state <laughs> bomb. Um, Brendan, it's so nice to talk to you, and I hope we'll get to be able to, to speak again soon on, on some of these matters. I think there's so much more that uh, people need to 
hear that they're not insane for thinking and and it's it's become almost too easy to really stand against the stupidity from all these uh woke and, and and nonsense identity cults because ordinary people like you and me we we don't think that we're necessarily coming up with the most extraordinary ideas uh, we're saying what people think and what's sensible and and it seems to be resonating with more and more people because they're tired of being sold nonsense yeah, absolutely. I think the starting point of any kind of new politics has got to be a restoration of common sense, a restoration of reason. So it's not the most radical project in history, but it's an essential one where we just need to get things back to a reasoned level playing field. And then we can start having discussions about the future, I think. Brendan O'Neill, it's a great pleasure to see you and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you so much.